everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will focus in on U.S. real estate markets, spanning everything from housing and rentals to the future of office space and the implications of e-commerce growth to warehouse and storage. So joining me here on the line for the conversation today, glad to welcome John Wallachin, real estate and lodging analyst for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as welcome to the forum, Kevin White, Global Co-Head of Alternatives Research and Strategy for DWS. So John, Kevin, it's great to be with you both today here on the podcast and very much looking forward to what should be a productive conversation on real estate. So welcome to you both. Uh, Morning, Dan. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Dan. Absolutely. And I know we have a lot of ground that we want to cover over the next 30 minutes or so. Maybe to a level set, it would be helpful to check in on year-to-date performance for the U.S. real estate sector, broadly speaking. So, uh, Kevin, on a year-to-date basis, how has the real estate sector performed relative to your expectations heading into 2021? Well, Dan, the, the markets performed a lot better, frankly, than uh, I anticipated. In the listed market, uh, REITs have outperformed the broader S&P. Um, that's uh, compensating a little bit for underperformance in, in 2020, but we have seen a pretty Im- impressive rebound. Uh, in the private market, where um, I spend a, a lot of my time, um, we've seen a, a more nuanced picture, uh, softer decline in 2020, um, but uh, also uh, a recovery coming into 2021. Overall, uh, prices for real estate are essentially flat, uh, on a par with where they were uh, pre-COVID, which, uh, which frankly is a lot better than we anticipated, given the gravity of the, of the pandemic and the, and the recession that we saw uh, in the spring of last year. Um, so uh, I believe that we're setting up pretty well for the for the year ahead. Okay. And John, what about your take on performance relative to expectations heading into the year and maybe even backing out the past couple of sessions, which have been quite volatile? Yeah. And I think Kevin used a really good word there, uh, nuance. Certainly in the public markets, uh, after what was a very, very challenging year in 20, uh, you know, you've seen certain sectors rebound, particularly uh, those that have been tied to the reopening. I think the, uh, the one that has not surprised us is the rebound in retail, particularly in the shopping centers. Uh, you, know, we, you know, we were and continue to be very bullish on in terms of traditional real estate, both industrial and multifamily. And we did think multifamily would be the what I call the upside surprise sector. I think the one area, at least within the public markets, where it's still very much a show-me story is office. And, you know, I know we're going to talk about office later. You know, I still think that there is very much of a, of a you know, not if you will build it, they will come, but a, a prove-it-to-me story. The private markets are more interesting in that, you know, from, from our view, and we spent a lot of time talking to private investors, uh, the dislocations were significantly less, at least from our perspective, in the, in the private markets throughout 2020. Uh, and a lot of it had to do with not only fiscal and monetary policy, which, unlike the global financial crisis, moved very, very quickly, but also the, just the absolute a plethora of capital that uh, was and continues to sit on the sidelines. And so we still see uh, a tremendous amount of interest in the private markets. Now, obviously, it varies dramatically. By, by property type and geography, 
but nonetheless, uh, private markets uh, continue to hold up pretty well in our view. On a going forward basis, maybe in the way of some outlook commentary, and to your point, so John and Kevin, we will be doing some deeper dives into some specific areas within the broader real estate landscape, which is quite fast. Though, any components in particular, Kevin, that you believe are best positioned in consideration of the economy moving closer towards reopening recovery? Uh, yeah, great question, Dan. And um, I'll probably echo a little bit of what um, John was saying earlier. I mean, the easiest call. Um, heretofore, um, and actually I think going forward is industrial. Um, uh, logistics, warehouse space has been doing well for years, uh, but uh, it just goes from strength to strength. I mean, the, the physical demand for warehouse space uh, was uh, the highest in Q4, what they call absorption. Uh, it was the highest we've ever seen uh, in the history of real estate data going back at least 40 years. Uh, so it's red hot. Um, the retailers, Internet retailers, traditional retailers um, are scrambling uh, to build out their distribution uh, infrastructure in order to meet um, e-commerce demand and also accelerate the speed of delivery. Um, also, uh, processing returns is part of that story as well. But uh, the bottom line is that they need a lot more warehouse space. Uh, and the developers just can't build it fast enough. So the, the amount of vacant space in the market is at all-time historic lows. You're seeing you know, massive rent growth and a, and a huge amount of uh, momentum there. Uh, e-commerce increased 30% last year. Uh, so uh, you know, very impressive growth. We think that it still has a long way to go. Um, so that's setting up for a really good outlook uh, for industrial space. Now, uh, I guess the... the, the uh, counterpoint to that is that uh, this is no secret. I mean, everybody is, is well aware of this dynamic within uh, the industrial segment of real estate. And so uh, there's a lot of capital chasing um, this, uh, this sector. Uh, so it's getting more expensive, uh, more competitive. Uh, we think it's still uh, reasonable, uh, given uh, the growth outlook and um, uh, given the fundamentals. Uh, but it's something to watch. I think at, at some point, uh, we could very well get to the uh, point where it's uh, where the pricing is is a little bit rich, uh, even given the very strong fundamentals backdrop. Um, but we're not quite there yet. Um, other areas that I think look attractive, uh, and, and John mentioned earlier, uh, multifamily. But you know, it's, again, it's very selective. So within multifamily, uh, not optimistic about urban uh, kind of high-rise apartments. And I think you know maybe we'll talk about migration a little bit later, but uh, uh, not particularly optimistic there, but the suburban uh, residential segment, whether it's uh, uh, single-family rentals or multifamily, we think looks good. And then maybe on a bit of a contrarian front, uh, you know, retail has had has kind of got a bad name uh, in recent years as a result of uh, e-commerce kind of pushing a lot of traditional retailers out of business. Uh, but we think there's opportunity here, actually. Uh, so within Kind of the more suburban style, um, you know, open air retail centers providing kind of daily needs and services, importantly, services, uh, we think can actually do well. And the pricing, because it's out of favor, is a little bit more attractive. Uh, so we think there might be some opportunities there. And to your point, Kevin, I do want to do some deeper dives into those areas. I know there's a lot to unpack. Before we get a bit more granular, maybe we can briefly uh, touch base on Washington, D.C. I know the recovery, broadly speaking, across the U.S., the economy has been helped in large part by the unprecedented scope scale of fiscal monetary assistance, meant, of course, at the time to manage, mitigate the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. But, of course, 
course, we're mindful of further stimulus efforts being proposed and discussed. A couple of more key ones that come to mind, the American Jobs Act, the American Families Plan. Kevin, what are some standout implications of these stimulus proposals to the broader real estate sector? Yeah, this is uh, certainly, you know, interesting times. Um, I think that they, uh, you know, the scale and scope of the uh, fiscal and monetary measures that have been uh, enacted um, are just unprecedented uh, and an order of magnitude beyond anything that we've seen in the past. Um, so, I mean, if you look at the three rounds of fiscal stimulus, $5 trillion, 25% of GDP, that's you know more than we've seen uh, before and more than uh, any other countries are doing. And with these two uh, more recent proposals on infrastructure and um, so, uh, you know, uh, uh, social and educational uh, programs, another $4 trillion, it really adds up to really an extraordinary amount of stimulus. And then, of course, the Fed uh, is continues to buy $120 billion of securities every month. Um, I think in the short term, the combination of that with the reopening, uh, and this is, again, kind of the consensus thinking, but uh, we subscribe to it, it will result in, in very strong growth this year. And, and I think economists are kind of landing on a, a growth number of 6 to 7%, which would be the strongest since you know, Reagan uh, in 1984. Um, it's important for real estate because real estate is highly correlated to the economy. So, I mean, the economy does well. It means more people getting jobs, more people moving into apartments, more people shopping at shopping centers, uh, ordering online and, and driving demand for warehouse space. So um, demand is closely associated with the economy. So it's, uh, near term, it's very positive in that respect. And the other side of this is just inflation. And I know that's got a lot of attention in recent days in particular, especially with a uh, a pretty, you know, astonishing uh, inflation print yesterday. Uh, but I think that that will also be uh, uh, an implication uh, from all of this. Historically, real estate has um, functioned as a pretty effective, not a perfect, but a pretty effective inflation hedge. Um, so I think that it's, uh, it could be problematic for the economy. I think it's probably more positive for real estate, certainly uh, relative to uh, to kind of the broader investment environment, uh, kind of environment, um, and uh, I think the next question and task for us as an investment manager is trying to position within the real estate portfolio in a way that can um, that can accommodate these inflationary pressures. The inflation topic is a good point, Kevin. I know when it comes to home prices, it's been quite eye-opening, and we're going to dive a bit deeper into that topic in a few moments. Though, John, I'm curious to hear your thoughts if you'd like to weigh in on the policy implications we've been hearing out of Washington, extending as well to taxes. I know these are topics you write about quite frequently, but what are your thoughts there in terms of policy implications to the broader space? Yeah, uh, so just to finish a point Kevin was talking on uh, in terms of monetary and fiscal policy, um, one of the really uh, very helpful things about especially the very rapid move uh, monetary policy-wise had as ke- had after a, 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 a big sp- a big spike in spreads, uh, bond, uh, bond spreads came in very, very quickly. And uh, REITs, particularly uh, investment-grade REITs, have been able to borrow at incredibly attractive rates and very tight spreads. 
and uh, those multifamily companies that have access to, to Fannie and Freddie not only are, are able to borrow at very attractive rates, but also have been granted forbearance. So there have been definitely some policy things that have been helpful. Uh, but look, there, you know, there, there is always risk in policy. And, uh, you know, as, as President Obama said, elections have consequences. Well, I like to say policy has consequences. And uh, if you look at the American Families Plan, that President Biden has proposed, uh, there are a lot of potential, and I emphasize the word potential risks to real estate, whether it's the elimination of 1031 exchanges, whether it's the changing of capital gains rates um, for uh, people, I believe it's earning over a million dollars, whether it's eliminating the step-up basis uh, on transfer on death, uh, will uh, A, will these come to pass? B, will they be prospective or retroactive? These are all questions. Uh, now, the, uh, the the what's called the Green Book will be coming out, I believe, later this month with more details behind the plans. But there and and we did put a blog out on this, and so you know we think it's really really important because not only will uh, tax increases have implications for the broader economy, but some of these uh, proposals are targeted directly at real estate. And even though you know, the REIT market has grown to probably closing in on $1.5 trillion of market cap, the vast majority of real estate is still in the hands of, of, pri- of private owners. And so these, this, these could have very serious implications down the road uh, for uh, transaction activity and i.e. ultimately price discovery, uh, for valuations and things like that. Uh, so these are things that we're watching very closely. And again, we want to emphasize these are proposals right now. I know the Republicans have said, you know, the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act is our red line in the sand. But I've heard many a politician use the word red line in the sand only to jump right over it. So again, it's something uh, we encourage people to look at very closely. The situation does remain quite fluid. So all topics and factors will continue to try very closely. So real quickly, I do want to highlight for our listeners and clients of the blog that John mentioned and all of John's written research can be located on UBS.com forward slash CIO for your reference. Uh, Though I do want to circle back on a topic uh, Kevin, you've been bringing up a bit during our conversation thus far, that being e-commerce and its adoption across multiple categories undoubtedly has been a winner beneficiary during the pandemic period. So Kevin, what has that meant for the warehouse storage subsector, and how might the space evolve further from here? Yeah, uh, so good question, Dan. So, um, you know, it's, if there's been a winner out of all of this, um, among the traditional sectors of, of real estate, um, I think that, you know, industrial or warehouse space is clearly a standout. Um, as I mentioned, I think earlier in our conversation, uh, the demand is red hot, it's unprecedented. Uh, there has been construction, there's been development, but um, it just it, it just can't keep up. And as a result, um, the owners of these uh, warehouse properties have a lot of pricing power. Uh, so we're seeing really strong rent growth, um, and that'll continue into this year. Um, the, the reason is that, uh, you know, the retailers, in order to meet the same-day uh, delivery demands of e-commerce consumers, the only way they can do that is to store more inventory in more places, in particular, close to where people live. Um, and so um, there's a rapid effort uh, to try to build out distribution networks in order to uh, facilitate that. Um, also, uh, within the e-commerce world, 
uh, more than 30% of things that are ordered online are returned. Um, and that compares to maybe about 15% for things bought through physical stores. So uh, the processing of those returns also uh, consumes a lot of warehouse space. Um, so uh, it's an important driver. Uh, we think that it still has quite a ways to run. Um, and the reason is that despite all of that growth we've seen this year, uh, e-commerce is still, you know, about 17% of overall retail sales. That's a, you know, that's a big number. It's up from, you know, about one uh, or 2% about, you know, 18 years ago. Um, so it's steadily increased. Uh, but when you look at some other countries like uh, the UK, for example, it's, it's 30%. Uh, South Korea, about the same. In China, about 50% of retail sales um, are uh, through e-commerce. So uh, we think that there's still a lot of more room for this to go. I'm not really concerned about the demand fading uh, for uh, e-commerce and, and uh, as a consequence, warehouse space. Uh, what I'm more focused on, really, if anything is going to give, it's, it's pricing. That, uh, As I mentioned before, it's very competitive. Uh, the pricing has been bid up. I, I think it's still reasonable, but um, it could be that um, pricing gets ahead of even these really bullish expectations on the fundamentals. Kevin, your demand outlook, a point well taken considering I see probably delivery trucks going up and down my street at least a dozen times per day, if not more. So a fair point there. Uh, John, anything on the e-commerce front you'd like to weigh in on? Yeah, I would just add a couple things to what Kevin said. First of all, I, you know, I agree with all his points. They were spot on. Uh, I think one of the things that we learned uh, during the pandemic, we learned with the blockage of the Suez Canal, uh, is that the supply chain is very fragile at best. And over many, many years, uh, we have migrated to a just-in-time inventory basis. And uh, every company that we hear from, they're going to be going to just-in-case inventory. So that is certainly going to put more, you know, more demand uh, out there for warehouse space, number one. And number two, uh, you know, whether we want to call it onshoring or nearshoring, we are going to, you know, we're going to have, we can't be single source dependent on any one country. Uh, and so we think we're going to see more uh, distribution come closer to the U.S. All this, in our view, uh, bodes very, very well. Uh, for continued demand and industrial. Uh, but, uh, you know, Kevin's point is a valid one, that pricing is getting aggressive. And so it is important that we just can't look at one side of the equation because ultimately, you know, demand, uh, supply will catch up to demand. It already has in certain markets. And so uh, don't get too caught up in the fever of a great story. What you pay still matters. Thank you, John. So I do want to circle back on the housing space and even the rental market. And Kevin, I know uh, you'd like to weigh in on the rental market a bit, though. John, as a starting point, home price inflation, is that a concern in your view? And as we move further into a post-pandemic world, might we see a reversal of these migration patterns that we've been witnessing and that you and I have talked about on other podcasts over the past year? Well, I mean, so in terms of home price inflation, I mean, certainly we can't have a continued situation where home prices uh, continue to grow at a, at a pace so far in excess of of income growth. I mean, at some point that will have to normalize. Right now, we are in a situation where the supply demand imbalance in, in single family homes is just incredibly large. We have, uh, right now the prime, prime home buying age is between, uh, 30 and 39, where there's roughly 44 million people, depending on whose numbers you look at. 
and we are at the lowest level of available supply, uh, I believe, since since the data was recorded in both new and existing homes. Um, so even with the backup in mortgage rates, we still have to look at the absolute level of rates. So you know we're sitting here in a roughly a 165 to 170 uh, 10-year Treasury world that puts us somewhere about you know anywhere from 325 to 340 on mortgage rates. So it's the absolute level that matters more than the move in the rates. And so if we look at it, and we're going to do this based on median priced home in the country, which for an existing home is around 321 thousand dollars, the median monthly payment as a percent of median household income is still around, say, 22-23%, which is far below where we were in the housing bubble period, which was close to 33 or 34%. So yes, we watch it very, very closely, uh, but certainly uh, housing remains generally affordable. As far as the migration patterns go, uh, this has been a trend that's been going on for a lot of years. Uh, we, you know, we have a lot of data on this and spent a lot of time talking about it. So this is not a COVID-only phenomenon. We think COVID has put, to a degree, put this on steroids. Uh, but there's been, and you know, although we don't want to make this a political discussion, it's predominantly been a blue state to red state migration. That's what people are calling it. It's basically people and businesses migrating from states with unfavorable business tax and regulatory policies into states that are more favorable. And they also happen to be lower cost. We don't think that changes anytime soon. Now, what will be interesting in our view with COVID is to, and I, you know, I'd be very intrigued to hear Kevin's views uh, on office, because I think this is going to drive a lot of it. You know, the way we're thinking about this is there will ultimately be a portion of the population that will work remotely. What that percentage is, none of us know. But for those people who live in very expensive cities, whether it's New York, LA, San Francisco, just to pick three, if they're told they can work remotely, uh, they're going to think long and hard about, am I going to spend four or $5,000 a month on rent, or can I move to just pick a city, Nashville um, or, or, or Durham, all nice cities, where I can buy a home for a monthly payment that's much less than that. So we don't think that this, uh, this has changed, uh, these migratory patterns have changed either at the personal level or the corporate level. Uh, and when you see, and New York State recently passed a budget with unfavorable, in our view, unfavorable tax policies, we think that only exacerbates that trend. John, that, that's a very good point in terms of the return to office dynamic and how that might influence, impact migration patterns. And uh, Kevin, there has been much speculation as to how return to office plans will play out over the course of this year, 2021. And even further beyond that, we have been hearing from some larger companies. They've been transparent in recent weeks about their plans and timelines. So what have you been hearing, Kevin, from office landlords as of late in terms of what we can expect the post-pandemic office environment to look like and how might that indeed impact the rental market and even the housing market? I just want to add a comment about um, your earlier um, conversation about uh, about the housing market um, and migration. Uh, I agree with uh, all, of, all of John's points. I think that, you know, the housing market... Uh, prices are up 10 to 15 percent uh, depending on the measure it's really being driven more by physical demand and supply uh, rather than kind of uh, financial things uh, you know I don't believe it's a bubble it's not really just low interest rates it's just that we haven't built uh, enough homes over the past decade since the GFC and that's uh, really driving that and I think that um, you know COVID um, accelerated uh, some of that trend 
Um, but adding to the comments about the migration from blue states or cities to red states or cities, another thing that we've seen, um, and that isn't purely a COVID phenomenon, is movement from city centers to suburbs. Um, I think that this has been under the radar, but it's actually been going on for a number of years. Uh, the big story now that's got a lot of attention uh, that as a result of COVID, uh, people being liberated from their offices, you know, not wanting to use public transportation, not being able to go out to restaurants, that's been driving people to move uh, to the suburbs, looking for a little bit more space and, uh, you know, kind of an easier uh, lifestyle in this COVID environment. Uh, but the truth is that um, this migration from city centers to suburbs started five years ago. Um, you know, millennials, uh, that generation, which drove um, this, you know, phenomenon of you know, urbanization, gentrification, uh, this revitalization of city centers, it absolutely happened. Uh, but as that generation has been getting older, uh, they have been starting to settle down, start families and look for more space to do so. So actually, that pendulum started to swing back towards suburbs in 2015. Um, I think it accelerated with COVID, but because the roots of it uh, are pre-COVID, we think it'll continue um, actually going forward. Um, just on your question about um, office markets, um, you know, you're hearing a lot of anecdotes. Right now, uh, if you look at, uh, you know, there are measures of office occupancy today, just, you know, how many people are actually physically using office space today. It's still pretty low. It's about 25% nationally. Um, you know, it's lower in New York. It's a little higher in Dallas and Houston, uh, places like that. Um, you know, if you look at what companies are saying, it's, it's interesting. A lot of financial companies are saying, uh, that they uh, want people to come back to the office. A lot of tech companies are saying they're very comfortable having their employees work from home. Um, you know, the, the paradox there is that um, actually, if you look at the companies that are doing any leasing activity, it's all tech companies. So uh, it's, and, and actually the companies that are giving back space are, are more financial companies. Uh, so a little bit of the, a little bit of irony there. Um, I believe that the future is going to be hybrid. Uh, so if you look at surveys of companies and employees, uh, it seems to be gravitating towards this notion that uh, people will work from home uh, and work from uh, work at the office about two to three days per week um, and kind of rotate between uh, the two. Uh, there are advantages to both. Uh, working from home allows you uh, to avoid the commute, uh, but the office is important for collaboration, building culture, uh, training. Um, so, um, you know, what does all that mean? I think that it's negative for office space. Uh, for the office sector in general. And I think uh, John pointed out at the beginning that in the listed market, uh, office REITs have been struggling a little bit. I think that that's a nod to this trend, which I think is very genuine. But it doesn't mean the death of office. There still is a, an important role for office. Um, in my view, it just means that you need to, as an investor, uh, be in uh, geographies where the natural kind of uh, organic growth of the market can compensate for this headwind. Uh, so that includes a lot of those um, southern markets that John referenced, but places in, in Texas, like Austin, Texas, for example, great demographics, a nice you know tech industry uh, drivers there. There are some markets in the country where the underlying economic drivers are strong enough to compensate uh, for this head, uh, headwind from the remote working trend. John, anything you'd like to add in the way of the return to office outlook, what your expectations are there? Yeah, I mean... Uh... I think where I might differ a little bit is, um, and, and I agree that, that, that the headlines and the narrative out there are, are very negative. 
and, and unfortunately, and this is not unique to real estate, this, we seem to be in a world of um, recency bias, i.e., whatever happened yesterday is going to happen forever in a day. And while uh, you know we suffer no illusions that there are going to be some structural changes, that there are a lot of reasons that we go back to an, we go back to the office, uh, whether it's uh, you know whether it's team building, whether it's uh, mentoring, uh, whether it's creative collaboration, whether it's you know the social aspects of it. Uh, I think that uh, we're going to look back a couple of years from now. And all the people that called for the death of office or gloom and doom, I think are gonna, you know, in our view, are going to be proven wrong. That said, we, you know, as I said earlier, there will be some structural changes. We will have some people that will work remotely full time. Uh, some people, and right now, there's a belief that people go to the office five days a week. The actual the average is more like four point one. So we could see that average going down to three. So you know what we call in the office report that we published last week. Uh, you know, we always like to use you know, catchy references because real estate can be a dry topic. So we use the Seinfeld reference of shrinkage versus de-identification. So the shrinkage side of it is certainly, you know, companies are going to look long and hard if they're going to have people working remotely uh, or not coming to the office full time or maybe working in shifts. Do we need all that space? And that's a very, very legitimate question. We think the flip side to that is that over the course of many years, we have densified, and that's a very fancy word for, we've crammed more people in the same amount of space. You go back you know, 20, 30 years ago, we allocated on average 250 to 325 square feet per person per office, uh, per uh, square feet of office. That number, excluding the, the co-working companies who really jammed that down, that number's probably sitting, depending on what city you're in, about 150 to 175. So we think in a post-COVID world, at least for the foreseeable future, that uh, we're gonna, that number is going to go back up. So ultimately, uh, there's going to be, there will not be, it will not be an even recovery. The, the rising tide will not lift all boats here. We think there's going to be a flight to quality. Uh, what we've heard from building owners, what we've heard from tenants is tenants want to be in newer buildings. Air filtration is without a doubt their number one concern, access to open air. So we think there is going to be a, a, a uh, quality bias here. So we are probably, no pun intended here, more constructive on office, but very specific office operators and companies and locations and who their tenants are. John, Kevin, uh, thank you very much for joining us and spending time with our listeners, our clients, and for covering all of the ground that you did with us today. Many of the topics we touched on are evolving and fluid, so perhaps we can all get together again down the pike for a follow-up conversation, though appreciate your insight today. Thank you again. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Today, we've been joined by John Wallishan, real estate and lodging analyst for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Kevin White, Global Co-Head of Alternatives Research and Strategy for DWS. The UBS Market Moves podcast channel is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering as well as the new UBS Trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us.
UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.